Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Baseball Hall of Fame and the pride of Canada, Larry Walker. As the pitch is swung on, hit in the air to right center field and deep. That one's sailing into the seats. He's gone back to back. Larry Walker with two solo home runs today. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the show, we've got a three-time batting champ and a newly elected member to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He'll be officially enshrined this summer. Ladies and gentlemen, Larry Walker. Walk, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Hey, Boone, you got it. You're welcome. So you're back. You're back from uh, Mexico, huh? Back to the mainland. Yeah, back, uh, back here and, you know, hoping things clear up a little bit. Um, you know, I went down there in March last year and, and things kind of went haywire, as everybody knows. So it just kind of hung out there and, and uh, waited for time to, to pass by. All right. So, so growing up, you grew up in Vancouver, B.C., and you're a reluctant baseball player. Let's talk about your childhood, and uh, I know you wanted to be a hockey pit player as a young man. Do I have that right? Well, when you're born north of the border, you basically come into the earth with skates on and a stick in your hand and, and ready to drop the gloves and fight. You know, that's just <laughs> that's a, that's a Canadian for you. So baseball, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't much uh, in my life growing up. So you're a junior hockey player. When did you, when did you get to the point where you said, no, I'm going to try it. Uh, I'm going to try this, this thing, baseball. Cause yeah, as you say, you know, over here in the States, you know, it seems like Christmas morning when Santa, you know, Santa comes, it's either a, a basketball, a football or, or a baseball mitt over there. I would assume it's, it's a hockey stick. So when do you make that decision that, no, I'm going to, tr- I'm going to try my luck at baseball. Well, it's the mid eighties and it was my second year going to the Regina Pats. Uh, junior A uh, camp to try to make the team. I was a goaltender, and uh, both years I was one away. They, you know, every team keeps two goalies, as you know, and and I was the third one every time. So uh, the second year they wanted to send me to a town called Swift Current, and uh, I, I drove into Swift Current with intentions to play. It was a junior B league, and I just went around the town, stopped by the rink, checked things out, and. And I don't know, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, this isn't for you. And basically that's when it ended. And that was the last time I, I played hockey and I came back really with not intentions to focus on baseball because I didn't really play baseball. I, you know, I don't have high, didn't have high school baseball. Didn't, uh, I played 15, 20 games a summer, played more fast pitch softball than I think I did baseball. So, but I came back and went and did my normal little summer league and got asked to try out for Team Canada in the World Youth Championship in 1984 uh, and made that team and then played against a college team uh, representing British Columbia a couple of weeks after that. And, and then things kind of took off from there. The Expos came, came knocking and uh, offered me $1,500 US, which was like two grand Canadian. So I, I hit the jackpot, I thought, and uh, inked my name and away I went. Yeah, it's amazing because... You know, I, I grew up and that's all I did is I played baseball and I played high school and I played summer league. Then I played a winter league and and growing up in Canada had to be a lot different. So you signed that contract 
for 1500 <laughs> American and you head over and you're, now you're in pro ball. How big of a shock is that for you compared to the competition you're, you're facing in Canada? Well, you know, they, they called them curveballs, I guess, or sliders, what I was facing back home. Uh, but I don't know. They're more of a, a spinner, maybe. I don't know. They didn't, they didn't do the same things that was happening in professional baseball. That's for dang sure. You know, balls were, were falling off the edge of the table, and I was swinging and missing by a foot all the time and just uh, was so far behind in, in, in everything that was going on. I think I hit 223 my first year in rookie ball. In fact, I was so bad my first two years, the Expo sent me to, to co-op teams. So in, in 85, it was in Burlington with five other, or uh, 85 was with Utica with five other teams. And then the next year it was with Burlington, uh, which was a co-op team with the Expos and the Royals. So yeah, I, I stuck it up pretty good. So there was a lot of instructional leagues and one winter league just to try to learn the game and get caught up on it. So you get through the system. It, it, you're in the minor leagues for four or five years. Get to the Expos in 89. And and you're going to remain there for the next five years through the 94 season. I want to go to that 94 season and that team you guys had, because that, that was my, yeah, that was my second year. I was with the Reds uh, and that was our strike year. But you guys, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think you had the best record in baseball and it was, uh, you, know, you had a Lou and Grissom and Floyd and, and uh, Hill and Facero and Pedro on the Hill. I think Wetland was your closer, uh, young Cordero and Lansing. Uh, you guys were stacked. I, I, and, and for, for the people listening to the podcast, in Montreal, it, it's a different experience. It's a different experience going there from the States. Uh, it, not, not overwhelming. You're not, you're not, <laughs> Playing in front of 50, 60,000 every night. But I remember how good that team was. Because that particular year, uh, the Reds team I was on was really good as well. We got right. stopped by the strike. So nobody nobody would have, you know, nobody knows what would have truly happened. But everybody was thinking if, if any time it was going to be the Expos time, it was there. Speak a little bit to that uh, the 94 season. Yeah, you know, that, that might have been the knockout blow that eventually um, – you know, had the Expos moving and, and going to Washington. Uh, I think if that 94 season continues, which we all thought, you know, hey, a couple of weeks, we'll get this thing resolved and move on. We're 30 games above 500 and, uh, and just rolling along. There's actually fans coming out to Olympic Stadium to watch because we're, you know, we're, we're running away. With, well, not running away. I think we're five or six games up on the Braves, though, who are the powerhouse. And, um, and then it just, you know, it comes to that screeching halt and, if that doesn't happen, I, I truly believe that baseball could still be existing. I don't know about to this day, but at least for longer than it did in Montreal because of the talent that was on that team. And we were all still very young. Um, and, you know, and uh, we, we, we continue on the World Series and, and win the World Series, as everybody predicted. Uh, then perhaps there's another World Series or, or, or more playoff runs, at least. And then and, and baseball becomes a little more interested in Montreal and, and uh, instead of, you know, the, we always joked around if people that would call Olympic stadium, ask what time the game is, we, we would probably say, well, what time can you get here? You know, cause it's just, uh, you know, four or 5,000 fans in the stand some nights. It was, it was tough to get motivated for games, but that year, uh, you know, winning brings the fans out and they came out uh, by the thousands and thousands that year. And I remember going to Montreal. I, I actually enjoyed going to Montreal. The problem was, if if we went in there and and had a successful road trip, they gave us a hard time on the way out, custom wise. If if you guys kick our butt, 
oh, we're going straight. We're going straight to the bird and and, and out of there. But uh, it, it was always an interesting place. You're right. <laughs> it was always an interesting place. Um, I just don't know. What What are your thoughts? Do you think at any point the game could survive if it went back to Montreal? Could it? Could well, a franchise I say? right now that I think you know about and I know about without saying names that are really struggling to put fans in the stands. Well, I guess every team is right now, obviously, without this crazy world that's going on right now. But um, but in, in normal situations, there's there's teams that struggle because you know they're either not winning or fans don't come out. And I think if Montreal given the opportunity again, obviously not with a big stadium, but uh, putting a new ballpark downtown and, and giving, giving everybody access to the, to the field like they do in St. In uh, Cincinnati, for example, your place. And it's, it's right downtown and you, you play some afternoon games, people work for half a day and, and come out to the ballpark. So it uh, makes life a little easier. The Olympic stadium was out of the way and, and not the most pleasant place to play, you know, and uh, I, I think that would possibly work in Montreal if they get that opportunity again. They're fighting for it. I know that. So after the 94 season, um, you head to Colorado. You become part of that, you know, the famous Blake Street Bombers, and it, and it's you and Dante and Big Cat and Castillo, a good buddy of mine, uh, Walter Weiss, was your shortstop, and uh, you had some good players, Ellis Burks. Um, and you, and you go on a run there. First of all, you get, you get there in 95, you guys are a wild card team that year. And it's the only time in your Rockies tenure that you get to go to the playoffs. But, but what was that like going into Colorado? And, and at the beginning, I remember coming in, that was, a, that was a fun place to play. It was new. It was exciting. The, 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 uh, city kind of embraced it. How was that for you in Colorado? Well, going there as a visitor, the first couple of years when they're at mile high, uh, and as with the Expos, you know, they're, they're pulling in 85,000 people a game. So, and uh, I, I think any baseball player or any athlete will tell you it's much more fun playing in front of a full house um, than hardly anybody. So that was a big uh, turn on and, and just the way the city is situated in the mountains. That's what I grew up with in Canada. So uh, those were two big things for me. Um, when I became a free agent and uh, the Expos weren't uh, – uh, offering anything uh, one of the reasons why i wanted to go there because just uh, uh how hungry and and sports crazy that city was so um you know thoroughly enjoyed the time there uh 95 yeah the the first year of the wild card and we managed to win that so you get off to a start like that you're in the playoffs and and the city's going crazy and um you know <laughs> once again though it's just it's a tough place to win and you know you You've been there and you've seen it, and pitching is the name of the game. And even the best pitchers couldn't survive in that ballpark just because of uh, of how it's situated. And it's it's a battle, you know. We take the field, and sometimes we come in and we're down a touchdown, and we haven't even picked up a bat yet. So it was a different game there for quite a few years. And um, you know, it, uh, but uh, like any city, you win, and they come out and go crazy, and that's what they did there. You won three consecutive batting titles. You you win the nineteen ninety seven MVP. But like you said, it was. It was tough to recruit pitching, first of all. Guys like Hampton, Daryl Kyle, I remember Swifty. And, you know, people ask me, what was it like playing in Colorado? And I said, the difference is, is the two seamers didn't sink as much as they normally do. And, and there wasn't that that hard bite on the slider. And I think that's what pitchers uh, that had to do it day in and day out in Colorado had to deal with. I think 
when they put the humidor in, you seem to see, it seems like it's coming back a little bit, but, uh, you know, to be a, a, a more fair situation for the pitchers, but, uh, it was definitely a fun place to play. I, I remember coming out. I mean, some days there's snow on the ground before the game and we get that game in that night, but, uh, you know, it, it yeah, was an interesting no, it was, place. It was, it was different. And then the snow was snow could come because they had coils under the, under the playing field that would melt the snow. So, um, yeah, there was definitely some cold games there, but you know what? It's, uh, there's other ballparks in the league that are pitcher friendly, some other ones that are hitter friendly and, and each ballpark is unique to itself. Right. I mean, uh, that's just the way the game is. You know, it's not like, uh, it's not like hockey where every rink's the same size, same dimensions, same everything. They might have more seats in, than, than some than another, but uh, everything's the same where a baseball field, depending where it is, can be completely different. And the dimensions of all the parks are completely different as well. So we get through the Colorado days and, and uh, in 04, you get traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. At this point, I mean, Larry Walker's done it all. He's batting titles. You're a home run champ. You won gold gloves. You got your MVP in 97. But you get a chance to go to your first World Series. Uh, speak to that a little bit in, in 04. Was it everything? Was it everything you thought it was going to be? Well, first of all, putting on the the birds in the bat on for a uniform on on your chest was was quite uh, quite thrilling. You know, it's one of those teams that really stand out above most others. You know, there's a, a handful of teams that have been around for a long time, and the history of the of the Cardinals is is huge. And uh, the sea of red that you'd play in front of every game in front of sold out stadiums. Uh, but you know, that was a big thrill in itself. And then, of course, the you know, first World Series appearance and. Uh, you know, it's at Fenway Park. That's the first first World Series game is at Fenway Park, and it's it's just as exciting as can be. You know, I I I don't think after the game I did an interview, and I remember saying, you know, you know, you had a good game, Larry. What, were you nervous and or excited, or what were you? And I, I remember answering the question, and I said the, the most nervous I was, I was hitting second, and after Larusa got announced, and then Tony Womack as a leadoff hitter, I was standing there, and Steven Tyler from Aerosmith was singing the anthem. And I, that was what, that was the most exciting thing I've ever seen. I was like, I was like a little kid in a candy store because I loved my classic rock. And to have him standing there singing beside me, that was the most nervous I was for the whole game. And, and, and uh, played for La Russa. And what do you think about La Russa coming back? I, I, I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. When we were talking about it. And uh, he said it's going to be a challenge for him, you know, with the, with the kids and the, and the, and the uh, culture in the game today, but, but he seemed up for it. And he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to come back. I'm going to, I'm going to adjust to the game, but, but bring his edge that he brought in his kind of, if you want to call it old school mentality. Uh, what do you think about Tony over there in Chicago? He's got a hell of a team over there. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if he, how much managing he'll have to do. He's got a great ball club. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, they can, they can make a push for the playoff run for sure. But, like I say, one of the well, probably the smartest manager I played for. Just you hear all about it all the time, and how he seemed like he was a couple of innings ahead of every other manager, and uh, the brain was always ticking and pacing in the dugout, and just knowing plays before they could happen, and and then just the, the knowledge was so so deep. And then you know, after games, he'd be in the hotel lobby, sitting in there having a glass of wine, and already making up the lineup for tomorrow's game, and and getting prepared, and. You know, who's got to face who and pulling up numbers and just, you know, he's just, he's just always thinking the game and always managing whether he was on the field or off the field. So we get to 05 after the 05 season, you guys go to the postseason again in St. Louis. Uh, I believe you get 
you get beat in the NLCS. Uh, you retire after that year. You know, we've gone over the accolades. Uh, and, and me just being honest, there's a lot of guys that, that have come on this podcast, got pretty impressive resume. Larry Walker, to the people listening out there, one of the best baseball players I personally ever played against. There were, there were two guys. It was Larry Walker and it was Jeff Bagwell. When you just completely... You know, the greatest hitter I've ever seen is Barry Bonds by far. I think that's kind of unanimous from the guys that played in our generation. But as an overall player that could beat you in so many different ways, uh, Larry Walker was right there at the top. So you retire, you wait your five years and, and you get on the Hall of Fame ballot. Did you get to a point uh you know, because you, <laughs> you didn't get elected to your last one. Did you get to a point where you thought – this isn't going to happen. Well, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's the feeling I had before I, I even got to the five years to become eligible. You know, I, I've said it many times. I don't consider myself a Hall of Famer at anything, never mind at baseball. So, you know, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Bagwell and uh, in that sentence. And um, right before we started doing this, I've got a DVD in my TV right now, and I'm watching the induction ceremony from 2017. I just finished watching Jeff's entire speech and, you know, I got to get prepared for that now. And so I'm trying to get some tips from past speeches and figure out what I'm going to do. I'm horrible in front of people. So this is a big challenge for me to, to get up and speak come uh, the end of July. But um, you know what? It's, it's a thrill of a lifetime, but didn't think it was going to happen, especially I think uh, a few years in, I was only around 14%, but uh, I think the, the baseball analytics and, uh, the different numbers and things that come up uh, and, and people see and, and ponder that uh, it eventually worked. And, and luckily for me, after 10 years, uh, I made it. And, and I think it was meant to be. My favorite number is three. I was the 333rd person elected into the Hall of Fame. So it happened for a reason. When you got the call, what was it like? I know you had the SpongeBob outfit on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, SpongeBob needed some airtime, apparently. You know, it's, like I say, it's... Uh, it's a call you don't expect. You know, the, uh, the other guy that went in in the same class, uh, and a guy named Derek Jeter, was uh, one vote away from unanimous. So that, uh, I don't think that thrill goes away. That phone call uh, for him was expected. So I don't think he, I, I'm not taking away his thrill that he probably had as well, but mine was probably a little bit more because I don't know that call is coming. I made it by six votes. And, uh, you know, the, the friends and family I had around me were, we were, you know, we we're just over a minute from going back inside and going to grab a glass of wine and, and watch the and, and the ceremony on TV. And uh, that phone rang, and I, I've talked about it so many times, and every every time I just get completely tongue tied. And it's one of those things that, and, until you have it happen to you, you really can't express the the feeling uh, that overwhelms you as soon as you see that two one two area code pop up on your phone. Yeah, it had to be unbelievable, and. Uh... You know, we talked off air the other day and, and, you know, you were talking about the it's virtual. And, and I'm, as now, if I sit back and, and remove this and just look at it strictly from a baseball fan, I, I don't like I like you being out there. And I told you about the the one ceremony I went back there to, to watch a buddy of mine get inducted, Trevor Hoffman. And I had no idea the the 
atmosphere that really existed. We all see it on TV and we see, you know, the loved ones and the friends that are in the audience. And you think, oh, there's a couple thousand people there. I went back there for, for the ceremony a few years ago. I was blown away. You know, they have it roped off and, you know, the ex-players and, and family members are in the front. But you look back and, and it's like Woodstock. And, <laughs> and you know, I got chills <laughs> watching my buddy on the stage. And, and I had a couple friends that year, but a real close friend of mine, Trevor, I had chills for, for him, for the players making the speech. Like, what an unbelievable moment this has got to be. And I know when we were talking, you said, yeah, and I'm not, I, I don't really look forward to speaking in front of people. I just think, man, I, I wanted you to, to have to do it in front of those people because I, I know that's <laughs> something years from now you'd be telling your, your grandkids how unbelievable that experience it is. It's going to be virtual, but the bottom line is uh, you're in. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you going in. Like I said, much deserved, man. Truly one of the, one of the greatest players I played against. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about today's game and the rules and and when 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 the game comes up and they're they're talking about these shifts and should they allow to be able to defense that way or two guys on each side of it i think about you larry every time i said if larry walker's playing today and you throw that shift on him you know depending on the situation he will bunt on you. He will take that hit every time because everybody always complains about the shift. I say the only re- the way you get rid of the shift is to make them defend you in, in a non-shift situation. And I, and I bring that up all the time. I said, Larry Walker will beat you any way he can. You know, if he needs a three-run homer, that's a different situation. If he needs a base runner and you're going to give it to him, he's going to take it. What do you think about the game today? Uh the shifts and, and the, the rule changes, you know, the, we watched last year in this COVID shortened season, uh, you know, the runner on second for extra innings. And, and, and I felt like I was in, in like travel ball with my 16 year old, but what, what's your <laughs> thought on, on, on what's going on right now in the game? Well, all the rules, like I say, that's uh, um, the extra inning thing. I'm guessing that's COVID related. I, uh, Mooney, I don't even know if I'm completely up on all the rules, and, and, and I don't know if I understand some of them. Uh, I don't know what the difference is. I guess they want to get the guys off the field quicker. Is that why the runners are put at first and second? I'm not sure. It's international ball. You know, when I coach Team Canada, that's what we do in, in extra innings. But um, but for the shift, uh, you know what? I I have zero problems with the shift. And for what, what, what you just touched on right there, you know, everybody's trying to, to do something different to succeed. And if it's not cheating, which, you know, shifting around, I don't believe is cheating. It's, it's defense. You know, they're, they're defending themselves for what your tendency seems to be. It's no different than the pitcher. You know, they go over the pitching report before the game because they're going to try to pitch you a certain way because of certain pitches you hit more than others. So, you know, they're, they're, they're telling their pitchers to do certain things. Well, now they're just telling their defense to do certain things. How come the hitter can't do different things? You know, learn to, Learn to do something different up there, whether it's bunting, like you said, or letting the ball travel, uh, let it travel farther, hit it down uh, the left field line or right field line, depending which uh, way you hit, and and uh, and see what happens. You know, but if they're going to defend you and you're just going to keep rolling over balls and hitting into three guys on one side of the infield, then I, I blame the hitter for that for not adjusting to what's going on out in the field in front of them. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And it, and it's just, you know, it, it drives me crazy. And I don't see more lefties. I'm thinking if you switch the field around and first base was third base being right-handed, you give me that, you give me that knock down, you know, that little, I can almost square early and sack bunt. I'll take that knock all day long. Now you got runners on second and third in an RBI situation. That's a different ball game, but to, to get an yeah. inning going, and to get it started, we need a couple runs. You're going to give me this? I'll take it all day long. That That's the way you get them not to shift on you. Next thing you know, they'll put a guy there. So, anyway, I, I just thought I'd throw that by you because it's, it's always when it's brought up, I always bring you up. Uh, and, and that's just part of the player you were. You know, you, you, you'd beat a team so many different ways. Larry, I, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh Wish you the best, uh, you know, congratulations once again on this summer. I know it's going to be exciting. And what we do here on the Boone podcast is the voice of the Boone podcast. Dan Levy comes in with a question for our guest. Danny. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Danny. All right, Larry. This one comes from Joe in Montreal, if you will. And this question is this. It's in French. I can't understand it. Okay, I was going to say, because it was going to take me a while to break it down. How has Canada's perception of the game of baseball from when you were coming up to the way it is today? What's the culture like now from when you were in it? Well, uh, you know, on the, on the west coast of Canada, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot. But we did have something, at least, and that was the Seattle Mariners. So um, it's kind of like the NFL, the same type of way, where we got the Seahawks there, because that's the closest NFL team if you're not into the CFL. But... You know, growing up, baseball just it wasn't it wasn't huge in the country, and I think now, uh, for lack of better words, it's huger. You know, it's just it's grown, and uh, the game has brought in a lot of unbelievable players. You know, it, uh, when it started out, I, I think I was the seventh Canadian that's ever played for the Expos. I believe seventh or eleventh. I'm confused right now, but when I, when I got there in '89, and and now when you look back on it and you see the names that are involved out there, you know, in the Morneaux and the Gagne's and the Vados and Matt Stairs and uh, Martin, you know, there's just Soroka. The, the list goes on and on, and you can make a quite a few all-star teams now out of Canadian board players where when I broke in, that didn't exist. It just didn't happen. So I think the exposure of the game and the success of a bunch of, of guys uh, has opened the eyes to some young kid, kids in Canada and, and introduced them to the game more. And I got a bonus question just for you. You've been around Brett Boone a lot. Do you think he could have played hockey? <laughs> well, I, I don't. Uh, even if he couldn't skate, I think yeah, he'd be out there and he would be the enforcer because he'd be the crazy guy going in the corner that would want to just tackle and fight anybody. So uh, every every team used to have those enforcers, and that would be him. <laughs> the Booner is definitely an enforcer. Well, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound? That means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. Ready to roll? I'm ready to roll. All right, this one comes from Mick in Houston, and it starts off like this. Brett, what does pine tar really do, and how do you use it on your bat? Did you ever have to do a little pine tar on yours or put it all over your helmet, or was it just a clean, smooth move? Well, pine tar... To get the true effect of pine tar, you got to mix it with rosin because just pine tar by itself, it's 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 almost too slick like oil. But they came up with this stick uh, ex-player named Manny Moda. Uh, he invented a stick. Uh, it's 
called the Manny Moda stick. And uh, I used it every at bat. And I would uh, lube up the handle. And, and well, when I say lube, no, it, it was really tacky. So when you put that on, I mean, your hand would stick to that bat. And I used a ton of it. I, I've got kind of a phobia with, uh, with, with my hands getting sweaty and slipping. So, yeah, I wanted them as tacky as possible. So is that why whenever you hit a home run or a big hit, you would just throw the bat as hard as you could? Because if you didn't do that, it would just stick to your hand? Uh, no, that, that was just, <laughs> that's just naturally how I got rid of the bat. That's a shame. I was really hoping that was going to be the answer. Okay, back to the mailbag we go. All right, Brad, this one comes from Robert in Reno. What advice do you have for coaches and kids who are just starting out in Little Leagues? Uh, I would say, as a, as a kid, uh, let the kids be kids. Let them enjoy their youth. Let them enjoy their childhood. Uh, it gets serious uh, soon enough for for the players that that have that that ability to go to the next level. So I just look back. I, I think you know nowadays there, there's so much pressure. It seems with travel ball and parents that just want their their kid to be so good. And it's like, we got to sit back and realize these are, these are kids. These are children. Let them, let them be kid. You only get to be a kid once, you know, let them enjoy their time. It's, it, it shouldn't be stressful or shouldn't be any pressure on you. You know, little league's a time to, to go out and get four hits, go have a soft pretzel and, and go hang out with your buddies. Uh, it's not a time to be grinding on, you know, working extra and, and uh, training. So I, my advice is, let kids be kids. All right. That's going to do it for the uh, Bread Boone mailbag. If you guys have any questions you want to send to him, feel free to do so. He is at the Boone 29 on Twitter. He's also on Facebook as well as Instagram. That's going to do it for the podcast itself. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, as well as the voice of this here Brett Boone podcast. The executive producer of the Boone pod is Rich Herrera. Digital content is handled by the one, the only, the lovely Liz Landry. So please share the Boone podcast with neighbors, friends, family, all those who love baseball. And make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give us that five-star rating and share feelings about the cast by leaving a review or whatever platform you listen to for the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care, everybody. Good night.